Okay, this morning we are going to read from the English Standard Version, Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity, I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. We spend the summers meditating on the Psalms to draw close to God. And have you been able to relate to anything in David's Psalm? Look at verse 4. There's a metaphor in verse 4. He says, my iniquities have gone over my head. Can you relate to that? Have you ever felt like your sin, the consequences of your wrongdoing, was like a rising flood that threatened to drown you? Have you done, done things, said things that have consequences that you can't undo? Create problems that you cannot solve or resolve yourself. Words that you can't take back. Consequences that you can't undo. And, and the weight of it is more than you can bear. That's what he's saying. My iniquities have gone over my head. Psalm 38 is not about injustice. We've spent a lot of time this summer looking at injustice when we're treated unfairly and how to deal with that. Okay, but, but Psalm 38 is about an offense. David knows he's to blame in this situation, right? Sometimes you and I, sometimes we've caused the pain we're dealing with. Sometimes we're the result, we're, we're the cause of our loss. We're the cause of our pain and grief. 
That's the focus for today. You know, we're, we're in the sixth month of a pandemic. And in recent months, uh, there have also been polarizing events in our society, right? Uh, events that have desi- uh, divided our society, divided elements of the church, divided family members and friends. And so for several months now, people have been acting out and speaking unwisely. You know what I'm talking about? In our uncertainty, we've mismanaged our stress and our anger. And now we've begun to deal with the consequences of that. Relationships, dynamic circumstances, we're dealing with the consequences of of mismanaging our anger and our stress. And if that's you, and I know it's been me from time to time, then Psalm 38 is a psalm of hope for you. Yes, David sinned, but look at how he responds to his sin. This is what brings us hope, how David responds to his sin. He responds in faith. That's what we're talking about today. I'm calling this sermon a childlike confession of sin. Because faith, the kind of faith that the Bible talks about, faith assumes the very best about God, even when you know you've sinned. You know you've sinned, but you assume the best about him. You believe the best about our God. And to unpack that statement, I want to talk about three basic ideas. Confessing our sin as believers in the God of the Bible. But a different aspect, confessing our sin as children of God. And then finally, kind of a different perspective, confessing our sin as God's friends. Three ideas. Confessing your sin as a believer, as a child, and as a friend. Now, confessing as a believer in the God of the Bible should be a common aspect of your life. If you're following this God and you have read what he has said, then confessing your sin to him and even confessing your sin to others when appropriate, when they're involved in the consequences of it, is just something that should be a part of your life. I should at this point explain the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Have you ever heard of those terms? Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. I'll start with worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is uh, you, regret, you regret the consequences of your actions. You're sorry for the results of what you've done and said. You may not have changed a thing if nobody raised awareness of the problem. You may have not thought it was a problem yourself, but because of the consequences, because of the pressure, because of what you're dealing with now, you feel you have to act. You feel you have to speak. You feel you have to do something. You're sorry for the results. Godly sorrow is different. Godly sorrow is a regret, not simply for the consequences, but you regret, you regret the wickedness of what you've done or said or thought. You regret the wickedness of your actions. You're sorry, not that you've gotten caught, not that you're dealing with a mess now. You're sorry that you've offended God. That's before, before the fact that you've offended anybody else or you've hurt yourself, you're primarily sorry for offending your creator. That's godly sorrow. And godly sorrow, you can, you can sense it in yourself and in other people if you see this brokenness. Godly sorrow manifests itself in brokenness. You are broken because of what you've done. And that brokenness changes you. The brokenness can result in two things that we see in Psalm 38, honesty and silence. Let me talk about honesty. In your brokenness, you become honest about your situation. Listen to what David has been saying in his prayer. 
In verse 3, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. Verse 8, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Verse 11, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. Verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. You see, he realizes now, he's honest, that his sin has cost him dearly. It's cost him psychologically. It's cost him physically, right? He's distressed and, and, and oppressed spiritually, maybe, maybe spiritually, maybe psychologically, but he's, he's also plagued. This is in his body. It's affected him. It's affected him physically. And finally, relationally, this has cost him, right? Because he's saying his friends and family have started to avoid him and his enemies have drawn close, right? His own people are avoiding him and, and his adversaries are, are, they're circling him. They're narrowing in to trip him up. They're taking advantage of his weakness. I really think when you look at this that David's basically singing the blues, Right? My family doesn't want me. My enemies are all over me. I can't sleep. My bones are in pain. My soul is distressed. He's singing the blues. I guess you could also say he's probably singing some country song too. I like to think he's singing the blues. I remember that famous blues song, Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. That's David right here. And he finally says the, 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 the climax of all the tension in this song comes in verses 17 and 18 when he, he finally breaks and says, I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. That's, that's the breaking point. Resolution doesn't come until that climax when he says, I'm sorry. I confess my iniquity. It all builds to there and then it resolves. Notice it doesn't, it doesn't resolve after God shows up. It resolves after David confesses his sin. Brokenness leads you to honesty about your situation. Brokenness also makes you, in a way, silent. Look at verses 13 and 14. But I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. No rebuke. See, he's, he's, he's done with excuses. He's not defending himself anymore. He's not justifying himself. No blame shifting. Basically just silence. He's done. He's done because he's broken. Honest, silent, broken. That's godly sorrow. And a believer's godly sorrow is really, another way of putting it is to say it's healthy guilt. It's a healthy guilt. Now, unhealthy guilt is something that you feel when people, uh, people, institutions intimidate you, manipulate you, or for some sense of obligation, impress upon you, try and force you into feeling a certain way and doing a certain thing, right? That's unhealthy guilt. It's coming from others trying to pressure you into what to do or what to say. But David's guilt is voluntary. David is volunteering this information. David's guilt comes from God. It does. Look at verse 2. Right away, he says, For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down upon me. God's the source of David's guilt, and that is a healthy guilt. 
And actually, the Apostle Paul illustrated this healthy guilt, this godly sorrow in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He had written a previous letter where in love, but harshly, he rebukes them. He scolds them for their arrogance and pride and their foolish behavior. And then he heard that they had fixed it. They had fixed the situation. They really were convicted and sorry about it, and they changed themselves. And, and now in this letter, in 2 Corinthians, he, he talks about it. In chapter 7, he says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you, you felt a godly grief, Paul said. For godly grief, he goes on to say, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, listen to this, without regret. Godly repentance leads to a salvation without regret. How liberating does that sound? To not carry the guilt anymore and to not carry the shame of what you've done and how people feel about it. But, but a repentance, a grief, a guilt, a sorrow that leads to salvation with no regrets. And he went on to say, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. This healthy guilt, it drove them, it drove them to a brokenness that, leaded to, that led to change. Healthy guilt moves the believer by God's hand into God's arms. I think that's so important to remember that. I'll say it again. Healthy guilt moves the believer by God's hand into God's arms to confess, to repent. Now, where does that healthy guilt come from? You know when you've been pressured into doing something or saying something or changing, right? You know when you have felt shame for, for how you have acted, uh, but that, that, that shame has pressured you from other people, that shame has pressured you into changing, whether you wanted to or not, right? But where does this healthy guilt, this godly sorrow, when God is laying his hand on you, where does that healthy guilt come from? What dynamic generates that? I really think it has everything to do with a parent-to-child relationship. Childlike confession is the healthiest way to address your sin as a believer in the God of the Bible. I want you to think about your own experience as parents or, or as your, your memories of, of your childhood. Um, when, when a child is disciplined by a loving parent, by a loving, healthy parent who's in control of the situation and not acting out herself or himself, when a child is disciplined by a loving parent, what do children do? Young children, little children, they instinctively seek comfort and reassurance from whom? From the very person who is disciplining them, right? You, you, you discipline this little child and, and in tears, they're trying to jump into your lap. They want to be restored by you. They want to be right with you, even though you're disciplining them. And what does David do? Look at verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. We already know that he knows the discipline's coming from God. It's his own fault, and the Lord's laid his hand heavy upon him. But he says in verse 15, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. And then look at 21 and 22. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. In tears, he's trying to jump back into God's lap. He runs to God. And this is not irrational behavior. 
It is, it is an instinctive trust in a father who forgives. And really, faith, biblical faith, saving faith, responds to the guilt of our sin with a childlike longing to be restored to our heavenly father. Remember the words of Jesus who said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. He was talking about this kind of faith, the kind of faith where you, you know you've messed up. You know you're a sinner. You know you can't fix yourself. You know you can't fix the situation. And yet at the same time, you're assuming the very best about God. So if you're a Christian, when your sins have, to use David's expression, when your sins have gone over your head, trust in your identity as a child of God. I think that's the key. When your sins have overwhelmed you, trust in your identity as his beloved child. The Apostle Paul again, but in Romans chapter 8 said, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of, listen to this, the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, Paul is not a misogynist. He's not leaving women out. For the ancients, the sons inherited. So what he's saying here is you receive men and women, you receive the spirit of adoption as heirs of the heavenly father. He goes on to say, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And Paul and the apostles use that Aramaic expression, Abba. And, and actually, Jesus started that. They got that from Jesus. Nobody had called God the Father Abba before. It was used to talk about rabbis because the word Abba, it's kind of like our word for Papa. Like Papa, in a sense, Abba, it carried both the respect of the term father with the intimacy of the term daddy. One scholar put it this way, Abba denotes childlike intimacy and trust. That's what Jesus taught his disciples to think about their relationship with the father. And then the apostles are teaching us still to this day. So, the believer confesses sin as a child who knows that she belongs unconditionally. So confess your sin as a child of God who has been adopted and will not be kicked out of the household. Now beware, beware of the orphan's doubt. Beware of the orphan's doubt in relating to God. What did Paul say in Romans 8? You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The old orphan nature in me and in you, it runs further away from God when we have messed up. We assume that he is wrathful. We presuppose that he is vindictive. And so like Adam and Eve did after they sinned, we hide. We don't assume the best about him. We assume the worst, or at least we're not sure what to think. So we run, we hide, we cover, we defend ourselves, or we act out and we become his enemy. You see, sin rejects the full truth about God, which is what Adam and Eve did as well. When they listened to the serpent, they embraced a partial truth, not the full truth. 
Sin rejects the full truth about God that he is both just. Yeah, he's just, but he's forgiving. Yes, he hates our sin. Man, God hates your sin, but like a loving parent hates the, a child's foolish rebellion. That's how God hates our sin. Like someone who loves us and wants what's best for us. But then he disciplines us with open arms and a forgiving heart. But you see the orphan mentality in me and you, the orphans would rather reject his loving restoration than endure the mo momentary pain of confession and repentance, right? You, you would rather run away from him and his restoration and his forgiveness and his compassion and his adopting you. You'd rather run away from all of that than deal with the initial momentary pain of having to deal with what you've done and bringing it to him. The orphan nature in us forgets what Psalm 30 verse five says, God's anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. So beware of the orphan's doubt. And if as a believer in the God of the Bible, you are struggling to embrace your identity as his child, would you consider it from yet another angle as a friend, as his friend? Abraham was known as God's friend. And Jesus actually said to his, his own disciples, his own, the 12, the night he was betrayed, before he was executed, he said in John chapter 15, verse 15, I'm not calling you servants anymore because servants don't, servants don't know what their master is doing. I call you friends. I call you friends because all that I have earned, all that I have heard from my father, I have now made known to you. Parents love from above. They have to, they're our parents. But a friend comes along, alongside of you. The parent loves from above, but a friend loves from beside you. And what did they say about Jesus? They called him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not simply disciplining us from above, but struggling with us from alongside of you. And one of the most important things that Jesus walking alongside of you, having lived this life but perfectly, one of the things he conveys to us immediately as our friend is that we're part of the family now. We're, you see, you're part of the family now. You're, you're with me. You're with me. And so you have, you have my relationship with my father. You belong in the house now. We've adopted you. Jesus can communicate that to us as a peer because he's lived the human experience. So God loves us from above and he loves us from alongside. And so we are his children, yes, but we are also his friends. David's experience here in Psalm 38 uh, is very interesting. Uh, according to one Hebrew scholar, Derek Kidner, he's got a really great commentary, very easy to read commentary on the Psalms. Derek Kidner said, it's ironical that the more a person needs human support, the less he naturally attracts it, right? Back to singing the blues, nobody knows you when you're down and out, right? The, the more help you need, the less people want to give it to you. They don't want to get close. They don't want to be associated with you. They're frustrated with you. They're angry with you. They don't trust you. 
The more you're isolated, the more you need people. But the more you need people, the less people want to help. And so it's amazing that we see Jesus in the Gospels befriending, teaching, and empowering, right? He's not, he's not just saying, you know, here's a handout, I've healed you. No, he would say, your sin, has, your sin has saved you, now go and sin no more. And then he would take these people in, into his camp. The woman at the well, the scandalous woman at the well, the village of Sychar, Matthew, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, prostitutes. These are people that, that he reached out to and befriended, and then he wasn't ashamed of them. He brought them in. He brought them into his inner circle, and they traveled with him, and, and, and they, they traveled with him. They supported his ministry, some of them, and they were with him to the end. Some people fell away like the rich young ruler. But these people who were desperate, the people, the untouchables, the ones that nobody wanted to gather around, Jesus got close to them and he changed them. And he said, these are my people. And now the, because they're my people, they're God's people. Is he not also able to befriend you? Has he not also befriended you? Faith assumes the very best about God, even when we know that our sins have overwhelmed us and our sins have, have hurt others and overwhelmed them. Faith assumes the very best about him and runs into his arms, begging for his forgiveness, which he has already promised to us. I'm gonna, I'm gonna close with Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So when your sins have gone over your head, and it's more than you can bear, trust in your identity as God's child. Trust in your identity as Jesus' friend and receive the forgiveness and restoration of your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we repeat the words of the Apostle John, Behold what manner of love should be stowed upon us by you that we should be called children of God. Thank you. We confess, we confess that that. We think often like orphans. We make fun of the ancient Israelites because although you had saved them and rescued them from slavery, when things got tough, they wanted to go back. And we laugh at them in our chronological snobbery. But we confess that we are the same way, just in a different circumstance. We rejoice in your forgiveness and then we still sin and we still struggle and we still wrestle as broken human beings and, and we want to revert back to thinking like orphans, like you don't want us, like you're ashamed of us, like you're embarrassed, like, like you won't open the door and let us in again. Oh, forgive us for not trusting that you can do all things. Help us to reject the orphan's way of thinking and embrace the thinking of adopted sons and daughters. As you have given us that legal status because of what Jesus has accomplished, may we embrace it and live in the reality of our new identity as your sons and daughters. Hallelujah. We praise you. Amen.